All right. Next on the docket, another issue of criminal justice. Seth Michelson is a poet, and when I spoke to him, he'd recently led a poetry workshop for a group of unaccompanied, undocumented immigrant youth. They were being held at a maximum security juvenile detention center. This is actually one of my favorite conversations because of the way you can access the interior lives of people who otherwise don't get a chance to speak in our larger immigration conversation. In my mind, this interview was such a powerful example of the need for the humanities behind bars. Seth offers a discreet but courageous account of his efforts to help detain youth express themselves via Spanish-language poetry. In fact, I love the bit in the way that it steps outside of our usual English-language depictions of American life. It offers a great example of the power of teaching. It also illustrates the potential political meaning of poetry, all while providing a largely unknown window into a side of the immigration debate we almost never see. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Seth Michelson from the show Land of the Free, The History of Incarceration in the U.S. For some people, a way to cope with incarceration comes with a pen. I've often heard of prison cells and dreary things supposed they were, where gloom and darkness only dwells to fill the prisoner with despair. And such they are to carnal hearts, who have no savior and no God. The day rolls slow and night departs and leaves them still a drear abode. But glory to the eternal King, who brought me to this little cell. Sweet pleasure here I find can spring, for here my God delights to dwell. That's an excerpt from the poem, My Cell, Number One. It was written by abolitionist George Thompson in the 1840s while he was imprisoned in Missouri. Thompson is one of many throughout history to document the hardships of incarceration through personal writings. The person you heard read that poem is Seth Michelson. He's led poetry workshops in prisons for two decades. A few years ago, Michelson started going to a maximum security juvenile detention center And there, he led workshops with undocumented and unaccompanied immigrant children. Michelson recently released a book of poems written by the kids inside the center. He says poetry became a creative outlet for them and created a unique bond within the group. Poetry is particularly available to all of the participants, whether literate or otherwise. And according to the Office of Refugee Resettlement, these young teens uh, are a range in age from 13 to 17 years old, an average of second grade education. Uh, Many were orphaned at a young age and grew up on some of the most violent streets of the hemispheric Americas and didn't have the literary, let's say, or academic uh, self-confidence to think of themselves as poets, but were quickly disabused of that by their peers and uh, with a little bit of encouragement from me in realizing like the Mexican aphorism says, de poeta y loco todos tenemos un poco. So of the poet and the crazy man, we all have a little bit. And saying, let's, let's all uh, access those things. You don't need to be literate to be a poet. Uh, and especially the prison writing histories tell us across the globe uh, that, that literacy is, is not a foundational necessity uh, of partaking in these important, nourishing, transformational communities uh, of writers uh, in situations of immobilization and incarceration. 
I spoke more with Michelson about the history of prison writing in the U.S. We discussed some poets who have written about incarceration and parallels Michelson sees to the words of the immigrant children in detention centers today. We first discussed the poet Etheridge Knight. He was convicted of robbery in 1960 and spent eight years in the Indiana State Prison. Upon his release, he published a collection of works about his time incarcerated. Here, Michelson's reading Knight's piece called To Make a Poem in Prison. It's hard to make a poem in prison. The air lends itself not to the singer. The seasons creep by unseen and spark no fresh fires. Soft words are rare and drunk, drunk against the clang of keys. Wide eyes stare fat zeros and plea only for pity. Pity is not for the poet, yet poems must be primed. Here is not even sadness for singing, not even a beautiful rage, rage, no birds are winging. The air is empty of laughter, and love, why love has flown, love has gone to glitten. So, to what extent does that poem in Knight's words echo some of what you've observed through your workshops? Well, it speaks to something that I've experienced in the workshops and that also pervades a lot of uh, the writing coming from prisons and writing of and about prisons. And in the particular case of Dreaming America and the workshops that I had the privilege to enjoy with these very special young writers, some of the best young writers I've ever worked with, you can see that despair. Uh, But here's a poem by a young child in one of the two maximum security detention centers in the United States for undocumented, unaccompanied youth called Olvido in Spanish, and it translated as I forget. Without reason to exist, I often forget that I am real. And this makes ache the soul that I don't have or that can't find me as I wander somewhere else. So you can see a a certain uh, level of existential despair. And that despair pervades the poems in the book and in the workshop and in the oeuvres of so many or the works of writing by so many incarcerated peoples. Uh, And another one, this one's called El Casamiento, which means marriage. Yesterday in my cell, my pal asked, man, don't you want to marry life forever? And I answered, why marry life if I can't divorce death? Mm. So this oppressive sense of mortality in the captivity, of the isolation uh, of the captive body uh, and the suffering. It's a a testament, too, to the, the universality of an experience that we tend to treat as particular, right? I mean, the, the, the migrant or the so-called refugee experience gets, you know, a very small column in the, the newspaper or it gets treated as a kind of add-on or a cognate to, to more mainstream conversations. And there's something about, one, the brevity and obviously the power and the themes in the works that you've just shared. I mean, you know, Olvido, for instance, in thinking about forgetting, I mean, the prison as design, as designed, is meant to make you not see and forget these people. And so the idea that somebody behind bars is, is literally forgetting themselves 
as, you know, a consequence of the prison's own makeup and design and power. Um, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. Um, I'd, I'd like if we can look at um, an, another poem and, and maybe do a similar kind of move in terms of this connection. Um, this is a poem by Gwendolyn Brooks, certainly someone who's far more known, certainly not forgotten, we're lucky to say. Um, she wrote a poem in 1981 called To Prisoners. Can you share that with us? Sure, I love her work. I call for you cultivation of strength in the dark, dark gardening in the vertigo cold, in the hot paralysis under the wolves and coyotes of particular silences, where it is dry, where it is dry. I call for you cultivation of victory over long blows that you want to give and blows you're going to get, over what wants to crumble you down, to sicken you. I call for you cultivation of strength to heal and enhance in the non-cheering dark, in the many, many mornings after, in the chalk and choke. Hmm. What sticks out to you about this? At least one thing. A, a deep empathy, a deep love for others, which is what poetry can lead us towards, to discovering Jacques Derrida, a French writer uh, who loved poetry and wrote philosophy, talks about poetry as a way of tracing the heart of the other. And it's certainly true in our workshop. We have children coming together from multiple nations, countries of origin, right, converging on a table, maybe having overlapping histories in certain ways, socially, politically, or juridically within the carceral system, uh, and coming to seek uh, a better life, pursuing the so-called American dream, and then in a workshop, exhausted, bleary-eyed, terrified often, uh, struggling to endure uh, the conditions of captivity, uh, coming together and connecting deeply. And the poetry is groping for that. She's reaching out to embrace the incarcerated reader, right? To call for him or her. And then also, like we talked earlier, the specifics of tropes in poetry. So here there's repetition that's so very, very powerful. And we saw it in Etheridge Night too. And this use of repetition that arrests while also intensifying. And so it's, I think it's the combination of the tropes with, with that deep love that she's sharing so courageously. So we have a, an intimate connection um, with prisons and incarcerated people, um, even when we don't always acknowledge it. And it's, it's no exaggeration to say that some of our most important breakthroughs in the world of letters are actually indebted to the thought work of those behind bars. I'm, I'm thinking, for instance, of someone like Martin Luther King, who wrote Letter from a Birmingham Jail, which was obviously a scathing, you know, critique of liberalism and liberal politics that had a variety of different um, affects and consequences in the ways that people thought about racism and its connection to seemingly, you know, political normalcy. I I'm very curious to get your sense as somebody who spent a lot of time, you know, meditating and, and working in this area very deeply. You know, what's your sense of our appreciation of, you know, the prison as a place of knowledge production, 
as a bibliography that we already are dependent on? And, and is there some connection between the work that you're doing now and that tradition of building a world of letters from the cage outward? It's inspiring me to think in multiple directions. The first thing, though, is probably a kind of warning to our listeners against um, romanticizing prison. And there's real lived material violence against these bodies that's excruciating. That said, another important qualifier is to think of carefully about the exceptionalism of these fabulous and deeply influential writers that course through our minds even unknowingly to many, like Dr. King, um, in that not all people discovering new modes uh, of writing in prison uh, are going to become canonical influential thinkers in transnational minds. Um, but that doesn't invalidate the importance of their prison writing experience, nor the significance of its contribution, even though it's more veiled or less visible or less known, right? Uh, it's still partaking in this crucial process. Uh, it's a mode of discovery. And in discovery, one of the things that's discovered is the transformative power of language itself. And that is to say that we need to work against rhetorics that normalize the caging of humans. You know, many of the young poets in the workshop, they're realizing that through language, you can at least symbolically question the lived violence of captivity and start to work against those discourses that normalize it, where we say, ah, yes, these bodies need to have their rights suspended. They need to be re removed from the social relocated to this space that immures them, that captures them within walls, uh, and that incapacitates them, right? Is incarceration the best answer to migration? And I think poetry can help us to find new language to sort of discover what we might formulate as alternative modes of understanding and being. Seth Michelson is a poet and a professor of Spanish at Washington and Lee University. He's also editor of the book of poetry called Dreaming America, Voices of Undocumented Youth in Maximum Security Detention. <laughs> 